Thank you for downloading this sermon from Grace Presbyterian Church. Grace is a church where people seeking more grace, more depth, and more community can start finding their way and sharing their gifts with the world. You can follow us online at graceforsufalls.org. We imagine in that pristine state, that state of innocence, the, the happiness and the fulfillment that Adam and Eve must have felt. But in Genesis 3, into that state of innocence, a serpent slithers in. And we have what is actually the first conversation that is recorded in the Bible's history. The first time that you have a back and forth dialogue. And it's interesting because it's, it's actually a kind of uh, literary criticism, if you will. The first conversation known to humanity is a dispute over the Creator and His intentions with His work. What is all this really about? What are the consequences of seeing it in the way that we want to? And the serpent invites Eve to take a second look at the forbidden fruit, to see it differently. These are the words that he says to her. This is Genesis 3, verses 4 and 5. The serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. That's the promise that he makes when he tempts Eve. That's what he promises. That if you eat of this fruit, if you do this thing that's been forbidden, your eyes will be opened. You won't be like a blind person stumbling through the world. You will see things for what they really are. And he suggests that God's reason for, for putting this fruit off limits is actually a little bit self-interested. The reason that God has forbidden it isn't that it'll kill you. He's forbidden it because it'll make you like him. God is worried about his power. He wants to hold on to his power. And if you eat of this fruit, you will be just like him. You will be free from his dominion. You will be equal with him. So if you think about it, the serpent in the garden, what he's offering to Eve, what he's promising to her, it's freedom. It's freedom. It's equality. It's things we long for. Now, in God's order, God had created the world and he had created man to have dominion over that world. Right? Within all of this creation, he created an image bearer. And that image bearer was given the, the, the power over creation power that Satan wanted for himself. He couldn't overthrow God's order, but what he could do was this. He could bring human beings under his dominion. So the ones who had been given the earth to have dominion over, he could have dominion over them and create a kind of parasitic kingdom in creation. That Satan could rule by ruling over those who were supposed to rule themselves. And it's ironic that when Adam and Eve reached for the fruit, when they reached for that promise of freedom, what they did was deliver themselves into bondage. They were promised freedom, but what they got was captivity. What they got was slavery. And there's a lesson for us in this. Because haven't we all desired more freedom, a little bit of liberation in our lives? Sometimes the, the commands of God seem heavy to us. His expectations seem insurmountable. And we just would like to 
get free of it. Live the way we want to live. See things the way we want to see them. And not have to worry so much about God ruling over us and the ways in which we displease Him. And our desire for freedom, our desire to have an equal say alongside Him, hasn't it led to us being ruled by sin? Hasn't it led to us no longer having the dominion we were meant to have, but instead being ruled by sin? I said kind of jokingly earlier that my friends growing up always thought that the purpose of Lent was to pick one of your favorite sins and stop doing it for 40 days. And then you could pick up where you left off. We talk about Lent as a season to give something up. What are you going to give up for Lent? And I think underneath all of that, there's an instinct that can be beneficial to us. It's the instinct of self-examination. To ask ourselves where the promise of freedom in our lives has been a lie. Where through our own actions we have delivered ourselves into the bondage of sin and are being ruled over it. The thing that we call freedom. That scene early on in the book of Genesis is explanatory. We wonder why we live the way that we do, why we have the kind of passions inside of us that we do, the conflict that we read about earlier. It all traces back to that moment in the garden. Our our fallen human natures can be explained by what happened there. But that scene has a sequel. There is a reprise. There's an answer to the questions that are raised in the temptation there. And that answer is found in the temptation of Christ in the wilderness. In the Gospel of Luke, this moment is described in great detail. Jesus goes out into the wilderness... Satan comes to him there, which I think is is paradoxical. When we think about getting away from the world, going out into the, the, the outdoors, being alone in nature, communing with God, we think of it as such a sort of high and spiritual thing. When Jesus went out and prayed and fasted in the middle of nowhere, temptation came. Satan came to have a chat with him, a conversation, just like the one he'd had with Eve. And a lot of time had passed. And the person he was speaking to knew a little bit more than Eve had known. And as a result, when Satan speaks, he speaks a little more plainly about the nature of the offer that he's making. This is Luke chapter 4, 5 through 7. The devil took him up and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in a moment of time and said to him, to you I will give all this authority and their glory. For it has been delivered to me, and I give it to whom I will. If you then will worship me, it will all be yours. You can see clearly, this is a conversation about dominion. Who will have power over who? The devil says, give me power over you, and I will give you power over everything else. The power that you long for to control the circumstances, to rule over others, to be glorified, all of that will be yours. And all you have to do is worship me, be ruled by me. It's interesting, when Jesus rejects this temptation, the way that he rejects it is noteworthy. Jesus doesn't say, no, I won't give you the power, I'm here to take the power. He doesn't flex his muscles, so to speak, and and throw Satan off. Instead, what Jesus does 
is he quotes Scripture. He quotes Scripture to him. He says, you shall worship the Lord your God and Him only shall you serve. It is written. It is written. So the way that Jesus overcomes the temptation is He goes back to the word of Revelation and specifically to this idea of worship. This idea of worship. Jesus will not be free of of the dominion of Satan by asserting His own authority. I'll rule myself, thank you very much. Instead, He's free of the dominion of Satan by submitting to the dominion of God. I won't worship you. I will worship Him. It's through that worship, through that worship, that He avoids the bondage to sin. And there's a lesson here for us as well. Because when we're in a season where we're meant to contemplate our sin and turn our backs on it and repent, typically the way we seek to do that is through self-discipline. It's through our own power. Whatever the sin is that you've been harboring, whatever the sin is that you haven't fully turned your back on, what you need to do is, is draw a line in the sand and decide this is where it stops. And from now on, I'm not going to be that way anymore. I'm going to get up tomorrow morning and I'm going to be different and change. I'm going to dig deep and be strong. That's what we tell ourselves. But you don't fight bondage to sin by asserting your own power or relying on it. You fight it by worshiping the true God. The real call to freedom is the call to worship. The only way to fight the dominion of the evil one is to worship the true God. There's another incident in Genesis, in Genesis chapter 11, that explains a lot about the world. Patrick and I were just talking about having to learn Greek and the difficulties of learning a foreign language. None of that would be a problem if God hadn't done what God did in Genesis chapter 11. His answer to the building of the Tower of Babel was to confuse the languages of the people. Humanity had come together to build a great city, and in that great city to build a great tower, to build a great name for themselves. God sees this, he comes down, and he does this baffling thing. He confuses their language. It's almost like God doesn't like cities or architecture or something. and just wants everybody to live in tents. When God comes down and he sees the city, these are the words of Genesis 11, 6 and 7. The Lord said, Behold, they are one people and they have all one language and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. Why? Why does he do this? What's the problem with what they're doing? And and more importantly, why is this the solution? What's going on here? From the fall in Genesis 3 until the time of Noah, men and women lived in, in a strange era in which the implications of sin were allowed to play out generation after generation. When you read in those early chapters, there's a a handing down of two lines, the, the descendants of Cain and the descendants of Seth. And you get this impression that there's like the good ones and the bad ones, and they're sort of 
in these parallel generations until you get to the time of Noah and you find out that the generations of Seth have been basically swallowed up by the world around them. Swallowed up by the world around them. This is the nature of sin and evil when it is unrestrained. This is what the world is like. The world becomes increasingly evil, increasingly unrighteous, so that it brings judgment upon itself. It calls down a flood upon itself. And God covenants with Noah afterwards not to let this happen again. Not to destroy the world in this way again. Then, a couple of chapters later, it starts all over again. It starts all over again. The march of pride, the march of sin, the march of human ambition. Human beings coalesce in a city. They begin to build a tower and God sees this is exactly the sort of thing I said I wouldn't permit. And so he goes down and he intervenes. He confuses their language, not out of some sort of a spiteful desire to, to stop them from building a great city, but to prevent them from bringing on the destruction that their earlier generations had done. This is the restraining work of God in, in, in holding back evil. When evil started to repeat its trajectory of destruction at Babel, God intervenes. The confusion of language was a blow, but it was inflicted to head off a greater catastrophe. And sometimes we have longings that God doesn't fulfill. There are things that we want, things that we desire, things we think would make us whole, and God doesn't just not give them to us, He keeps them from us. He heads them off. God restrains our sinful nature, prevents us from doing what we would otherwise do. He restrains us and He restrains the world around us and He does it for our good. This scene too has a sequel in the New Testament on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2. Remember, language has been confused. The nations have been confused. The people of Israel have been scattered. And if there's one thing that we know, it's that communication is difficult as a result of what happened at Babel. And yet, at Pentecost, God gives a glimpse of something. Read in Acts 2, verses 5 and 6. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven, and at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language. We contemplate and argue over the significance of this moment, but when you think of it, in light of Babel, the significance ought to become a little bit clearer. What Pentecost is giving us is a glimpse of future restoration. It's a glimpse of the world that will be once the, the restraints have been removed, the restraints that were necessary to keep the world from destroying itself because of human sin and corruption will be removed once creation is restored. The promise says you will not always be ruled by sin. The reign of evil has been broken by grace and it will be fully rolled back on the last day. There will be a new heaven and a new earth, but there will also be the removal of the restraint that once prevented us 
from doing what we desire to do because on that day what we desire to do will be transformed. In the meantime, this is an occasion to meditate on dominion. The dominion that sin still has over parts of your life. The dominion that Satan desires to have over you. Where does sin still rule you? Where are you still embracing its false promise of freedom from God? Which is really only keeping you in bondage. These are questions to think about. And as we look forward over the next few weeks to Easter, and we try to glimpse, we try to taste just a little bit of the significance of what Jesus did on the cross Remember these things. As you consider the sin in your life, don't seek deliverance through self-discipline, through strength of character. These are, at best, means, not ends. Forget that and you deliver yourself into a different kind of bondage, a kind of self-righteous one. Instead, seek freedom from sin's dominion where Jesus found it in worship in submission to the true God revealed in Scripture. In other words, the prescription for Lent that I'm recommending to you is not to give something up. Don't pick your favorite sin and stop doing it for a month. And it's not be more disciplined so that this time next year there aren't any sins for you to give up. What I'm saying instead is more worship. More worship. When you doubt, worship Him. When you find yourself in the grip of sin's dominion, worship Him. When you find yourself longing for things that you fear could destroy you, go to Him and worship. Thank you for listening. You can find more sermons from Grace and information about joining us for worship by visiting our website at graceforsufalls.org. We also invite you to visit the iTunes store and subscribe to the Sermons of Grace podcast.